Greetings and welcome to this week's episode of Every Square Inch, where we engage every inch of God's world with God's worldview. Hope everyone had a blessed Thanksgiving. I'm in the great state of Texas celebrating with my wife's family, and my Texas Thanksgiving was just as you would expect, uh, eating lots of food and shooting lots of guns. Uh, we've, we have finished our four-part series on the internet, which I hope was a helpful resource for you. If you did find it helpful, by the way, do me a favor, uh, for those listening on Apple Podcast, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Asking for you to do that is my least favorite part of doing a podcast, but it is by far the best way to get other people exposed to this content, which is uh, our ultimate aim in this. Okay, I'm going to use this week's episode to share my reflections from uh, my trip last week to Minsk, Belarus. I have done Western Europe a lot, but this is my first trip to Eastern Europe, and I left with so many thoughts, in particular so many thoughts on communism. Um, Every cross-cultural trip has unique experiences, and there is no doubt what was unique about this one. This was my first experience with a culture formed by communist ideals, and it was fascinating. Uh, before we get to that, let me, let me set the scene. The first question I've gotten from lots of folks about my trip to Belarus is, where is Belarus? So for those not familiar with Eastern Europe history and geography, let me do some br- background work here, and I'll start with World War II. We Americans tend to have a limited understanding of the war. For us, it essentially began with Pearl Harbor and ended with D-Day. And we have very little or perhaps no appreciation of the eastern side of things. By the way, let me pause here and give credit uh, to my historical tour guide during the trip. Uh, uh, She's a walking encyclopedia, Nadia. Thank you, Nadia, who had to deal with my endless questions all week and was just a wealth of information. Anyway, Hitler's ambition was, of course, nothing short of world domination. And what that meant was a move both west and east with the ultimate goal of taking Great Britain and Russia. If you own London and you own Moscow, then you own the world. Or, I suppose more accurately, it sets up a battle between a now sprawling Nazi empire and America, which who knows what that would have meant for us and the rest of the world. Now, again... We are familiar with the Western front of the world, but Hitler's advancement east toward Russia was by far the more brutal and bloodier warfare. Poland was taken quickly and easily, and this is where the Nazis established most of their infamous concentration camps, such as Auschwitz. And and then from Poland uh, began the advancement east toward Russia. Now, to give you an example of how violent this advancement was compared to the Western movement, the decisive victory in the West was, of course, D-Day in Normandy, uh, which had roughly 240,000 casualties uh, combined on both sides. But the decisive victory in the East was the Battle of Stalingrad, which had uh, 2 million casualties and remains the bloodiest battle in the history of warfare. In total, the Nazis lost 340,000 on the western side of the war, but they lost a staggering 2.7 million on the eastern front. And then standing directly between Poland and Moscow, thus caught in the middle of it all, was Belarus. 
And when I say caught in the middle of it all, I mean that literally. They were caught. That's the key difference between the West and the East. Stalin was no Churchill, and he fought the Nazis very differently. It was fascinating for me to, in the same month, to visit uh, Churchill's war room in London and then the war museum in Minsk uh, and see the difference of how the war was viewed. In London, it was like we view it in America. Very simple. Freedom versus tyranny. Democracy versus dictator. But in the East, it's much more complicated. There, the narrative is the glory of Soviet communism versus the evil of Hitler's fascism. In America, we tend to lump all forms of totalitarianism into one category and just call it communism. But it's much more nuanced than that. The Soviets viewed communism as the hope of a new world, and comparing communism to Hitler's fascism was and is an atrocious thought. But what this means for Belarus is that they were caught between the brutality of Hitler's Nazi party and the brutality of Stalin's Communist Party. And one could easily argue that the latter was worse than the former. Much of Hitler's atrocities were just an imitation of Soviet evil, most notably fashioning his concentration camps after the Soviet gulags. So imagine a a country caught in the middle of two cruel dictators and their evil empires, Hitler's fascism and Stalin's communism. And imagine liberation from Hitler only meant re-enslavement to a re-emboldened Stalin. That's what happened. The war ended, but the tyranny continued on. Most notably, after the war came the formation of the KGB, which served as the security agency of Soviet communism. Essentially, the KGB were secret police all throughout the Soviet Union whose sole purpose was to squelch any hint of resistance against the communist state. The KGB were brutal in their methods. Um, One wrong conversation, one unfounded accusation, one religious expression, heck, one, one thoughtful or even poetic expression, and the KGB shows up for you and many times your family. It was not uncommon for KGB to capture supposed enemies of the state and torture them into a false confession. Essentially, people would rather confess to anything and choose execution over the brutality of KGB torture. So put all of that together and you could imagine the culture this has created in Belarus. Most citizens of the world view World War II as a relatively brief rise and fall of evil. But for citizens of Belarus, it was only one chapter of a long history of suffering. Sure, the fighting was over, but life under the iron fist of Soviet communism was horrific in its own unique way. And then compounding things for Belarusians is that after the fall of Soviet communism in the early 90s, Belarus in particular never really moved on from it. Out of all of the former states of the Soviet Union, outside of Russia itself, I suppose, but out of, out of all the former states of the Soviet Union, Belarus has resisted the move toward Western democracy and freedom the most. Technically, Belarus is a republic, but after being there for a week, I can confidently say it does not function like one. Belarus is the only country, this includes Russia, Belarus is the only country that still has a KGB agency. A giant statue memorializing Lenin still stands in the city center of Minsk where flowers are daily laid at Father Lenin's feet. 
the state owns nearly everything. Uh, the flat, the apartment I was staying at was really hot, and I was trying to find a thermostat to turn it down, only to learn that there are no thermostats. The government owns the utilities, and they set the temperature for the people. Um, that's the kind of control the government has. The activity of the people is still monitored in every way. Everywhere you go, there are police and security watching you with kind of this intimidating countenance, and therefore there remains a pervasive sense of paranoia and oppression. The conference I spoke at was technically an illegal gathering, and I was told that a KGB agent would probably be there to monitor what I said. Uh, the church I preached at is technically an illegal gathering, and an American coming over to preach at both was definitely illegal. Now it's tolerated, as long as I didn't talk politics or capitalism. Um, but make no mistake, it is all being closely watched. And so Belarusians have learned to walk the line, so to speak. They know how far is too far, where not to push things. And so communism's brutality has thankfully gone away, but the sense of oppression very much remains. So that's Belarus. And to be an outsider observing this culture was a fascinating experience. If you get to know the people, they are truly very lovely people with an amazing culture. But the problem is getting to know them. They are guarded, silent, despondent, frowning, and yes, often angry people, especially when they encounter a smiling American idiot like myself. I could spend an entire episode on cultural faux pas that I made. Um, I, I, I'll give you one. Thank you in Russia is spasiba. I think I'm saying that right, spasiba. But I thought they were saying spasibla. Now, if you know Russian, you know that I just said something incredibly offensive. Blah rather than ba makes all the difference, apparently, because blah is something akin to the F word in our language. So I thought I was saying thank you to everyone, when in reality, I was saying thank F you to everyone. And my uh, translator and guide was too intimidated by me uh, the first couple of days uh and didn't have the courage to correct me. So she just let me walk around their entire country saying F you to everyone. So who knows? Maybe that's why Belarusians seem so cold to me. But I don't think that's the case. I, th I think it's their history of suffering, not my cultural idiocy, that has led them to be so despondent. And why wouldn't they be? What in their oppressive history has given them reason to smile? And what I couldn't help thinking about all week is that I just can't believe socialism is somehow gaining popularity in America of all places. Actually, I can believe it. Go listen to my podcast on redeeming capitalism for my explanation of why I think it's rising. But all these American millennials that are buying into it have no idea what they're asking for. Do we need to fix healthcare in America? Of course. Is there an ever ballooning wealth gap between the haves and the have-nots? Is that a problem? Yes, of course. Do we have a greed and overconsumption problem? Of course. But please, please, please listen to me, millennials. I return from Eastern Europe with the definitive word for you. Karl Marx does not have the cure to America's ills. 
and spare me the we want socialism, not communist thing, because communism is the inevitable conclusion of socialist ideology. AOC and Bernie Sanders can call it democratic socialism all they want, but when you look at the actual policies and agendas, you will see how radical they truly are. For example, when you actually get into the details of their health care proposal, it is one forced, government-run, government-controlled plan with zero private option. That's actually more radical than other countries with public health care. And more than that, history has taught us that that state control is insatiable. So, so in other words, if, if you have this idea that we're just going to kind of dip into socialism but not go all the way, well, any time a country starts going down the road of conceding power to the state, the state never concedes back. But what's so alarming is that I'm not so sure the rising generation of Americans even care about the socialism-communism nuance game. Last week, a poll came out that said only 57% of millennials think the Declaration of Independence better guarantees freedom and equality than Marxist Communist Manifesto. Millennials are literally divided between the Declaration of Independence and the Communist Manifesto. It was so surreal to read that statistic while in Belarus, a culture formed by this very manifesto. I just looked around and said, this, this despondent, oppressed culture, this is your utopian dream? To which I know the purists will say, well, that's not socialism. That's socialism misapplied. That's oligarchy. That's not communism as it's intended. Stop it. History is so exhausted with that excuse. At some point, we have to admit that it's never been implemented well because it can't be. Communism's idealism bears an intrinsic flaw that will inevitably prove its undoing. The ideal seems so right. Common ownership of a common society, no class structures, none are in need. That sounds like Acts, right? That sounds like the book of Acts, Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The Bible teaches the ideals of communism. No, no, it doesn't. You can go listen to my sermon on that passage if you'd like to hear more. But what we see in it is, is private ownership. They sold their possessions and their belongings. You see free economics. They sold their possessions. And you see free, not mandated distribution of wealth. They chose to, distribu to distribute to those in need. This isn't communism. This is what I, what I called in the podcast, redeemed capitalism. What communism seeks to do is force an acts to culture without an acts to foundation. People freely giving their wealth for the common good was the fruit of Pentecost, the explosion of the gospel upon the world. So overwhelmed by what God has done for them, this newborn community gladly and freely gave prodigiously to their neighbors in need. That's a culture that can't be forced, which is communism's fatal flaw. I know what Marxist purists will say, that the ideals of socialism rightly applied will eventually lead to a withering away of the state, as Friedrich Engels put it. The idea that common ownership and means of production will yield the absence, not just of social classes, but eventually even the state. And this is actually what Lenin taught. 
First, it must be implemented by coercive power of a strong state, but then communism would grow and evolve into a utopian culture of common ownership and governance where everyone is bought in and needs no coercion. And yet every single time, this promised utopian dream ends in a dystopian nightmare. Why? Because essentially what you're doing is replacing God with the state from the beginning. And that's the inescapable flaw. You see, there has to be an arbiter of the common good. If we are going to share everything in common through public ownership, someone or something has to be in charge and mediate that common ownership. In Acts 2, that someone is God. The people weren't actually selling their possessions and giving the proceeds to the needy. They were giving it to the church for distribution to the needy. They viewed the church as God's holy institution with Jesus as the head. In communism, the state is viewed as the people's holy institution with the dictator as the head. And that never, ever, ever will work in a fallen simple world. You cannot replace God with the state and expect a good outcome. And if you don't believe me, then you yourself can go visit any culture that has ever given it a try and behold for yourself the disastrous outcome. Now, that being said, what I want to guard against here is American idolatry. Just because communism is so disastrous doesn't therefore imply that the American dream is heaven. I think the Constitution is the greatest political document ever written. I think free market capitalism is the best of all possible economic strategies. And when I step off international flights and that border agent says, welcome home, it is the greatest feeling in the world. I love the United States of America. But let us never forget that America is not the kingdom of God. There was a point in one of my conference talks in Belarus where I was explaining why idolatry breeds anxiety. And the reason being is that we will either never obtain what we idolize, which makes us anxious, or we do obtain it, and then we have to face the sobering realization that our idol doesn't work, which also makes us anxious. And so either way, when it comes to idolatry, it leads to anxiety. And I use the American dream as an example. Belarusians are tempted to idolize American culture, thinking that what we have is heaven. And this breeds despair as they face the prospects that they will never have what we have. Their idol remains a distant fantasy across the sea. But then I said to them, you know who is just as anxious and despairing? Those who have the American dream. Because we're living what they long for, and we have to come face to face with its vanity. And when I said that, they all laughed. I actually thought the interpreter had slipped in a joke or something, but that's not what happened. They actually laughed at the thought that Americans could be miserable, and yet we are. We are just on the heels of Thanksgiving and Black Friday. For those listening overseas, Americans gather on Thanksgiving to give thanks for our many blessings and then the next day trample over each other in lustful greed to buy more stuff that will never make us happy. Make no mistake, you don't need communism to have a miserable culture. There are many forms of evil oppression, and our oppressor gets talked about a lot by Jesus. He didn't talk much about the dictatorship of Caesar and the cruelty of the Roman Empire. 
But boy, did he talk about money. Truly I say unto you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom? Because wealth is such a powerful oppressor. Nothing enslaves like capital, and nothing yields more capital than capitalism. The enslaving power of an almighty dictator is nothing compared to the power of the almighty dollar. Here's the thing. No culture is above critique save the culture Jesus proclaimed. It's called the kingdom of God. A kingdom where the very king we submit to is the very one who dies for his subjects to be free. A kingdom where the humble are exalted and the proud are brought low. A kingdom where none are in need, not because of forced coercion, but because of joyful generosity. A kingdom where contrite sinners are received, but the religiously haughty are rejected. A kingdom where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A kingdom where hope triumphs and peace reigns and love wins. That's my home. That's my citizenship. My government is a government that is upon King Jesus' shoulders. And until that blessed day when God's kingdom does come and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, until this culture becomes God's culture, Hebrews 13, 14 remains my creed. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city which is to come. That's true in Minsk, Belarus, and that's true in Lexington, Kentucky. Thanks for listening. Got a little preachy today, um, more than normal, but got carried away. Uh, shout out to my Belarusian friends who I know are listening in and to the Belarusian government that I also know is listening in. <laughs> I love all of you, and we'll see you back next week for another episode of Every Square Inch. Every Square Inch.